You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. You're listening to the Producers Perspective Podcast with your host, Tony Award winner, Ken Davenport. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. This is Ken Davenport, and you're listening to the Producers Perspective podcast, and we're very lucky to have as our guest today, fresh off of Red Eye from Denver, Colorado, where he just opened the national tour of Dear Evan Hansen, four-time Tony-nominated director, Michael Greif. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. So, Michael made his Broadway debut. Is this true your Broadway debut was Rent? Oh, yeah. So, that little (laughs) show that no one has ever heard of. Uh, also, on his uh, extensive resume, Grey Gardens, Next to Normal, If Then, Warpaint, Dear Evan Hansen, as I mentioned, and many more. Two of the musicals he's directed have won the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, so I'm going to start there. You, okay. you have a knack, obviously, for finding material that really resonates not only with the public, but also with those high and mighty critics, awards committees, etc. How do you go about choosing material? Um, mostly it's really about stories that interest me told in interesting ways. Um, and I must say that since Rent, sometimes, uh, stories and projects pursue me. So that's also part of it. So I'm in the luxurious position of being able to, uh, be asked to look at a lot of material, uh, sometimes I, I have people help me look at material, but more often than not, I'm, I'm able to actually take a look myself. And, um, certainly, uh, in terms of, uh, Next to Normal and Dear Evan Hansen, those are projects that I was invited 
to uh, take a look at and interview, meet the writers, meet the producer, talk about what my ideas might be, talk about what part of the material I responded to most, which parts I responded to least, uh, get a sense of if the collaborators were open to uh, a change, being able to change in their process. So those sorts of things. But certainly um, among the most successful or the projects that you, you mentioned, I was invited. I didn't go seek them out. I, I happily was invited. And then I'm also very happy to say that I needed to go through a process to sort of prove that the process could really work with the producers and the other members of the creative teams. So let's go then back to before the luxury yeah. position you're in now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we'll go mid That's back. Int- yes. Because we'll go back to rent a little bit. Cause yeah. The, the, from the stories that I heard, Rent was like bouncing around every producer's desk. The, the demo cassette was lying all over town. Jonathan was like really pitching it. Really, it was going nowhere for a long time. And then all of a sudden it found well, its what, home. Yeah, what happened was that Jim Nicola, who's an extraordinary producer, responded to that material and saw uh, all of its potential and was able to look past a lot of its roughness and a lot of its flaws because he saw at the core of it something he cared about deeply, but probably more importantly, something that Jonathan Larson cared about very, very deeply. And he was interested, I think, as Jim always is, as giving artists uh, opportunities to express themselves. When you first got a glimpse Mm -hmm. at it, how different was it from the piece that we now know and love? Like, how much did it grow? A lot of, it certainly grew, but so many of its most extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary uh, uh, parts were there. You know, Light My Candle was completely there, and I remember reading that the first time and listening to it the first time and thinking, this is terrific and what a fantastic way to introduce this relationship. Uh, another day was there completely. Um, some version of, uh, I'll cover you was there. I mean, lots and lots of the great, great, great songs were there. Uh, and there was also a lot of other material that needed to go away. <laughs> I did. And then some material that was replaced that Jonathan wrote much, much better versions of. You know, um, the, Take Me or Leave Me was about the fourth song Jonathan wrote for that slot in Act Two for Maureen and Joanne. And, uh, and when, and he didn't write it until we were about two, maybe three weeks into rehearsal for the production in 95. We also did a workshop together in 94. That song, even that position for that song didn't exist in the workshop for 94. Jonathan wisely understood, I'll speak a little out of turn, um, he he understood that the beautiful, beautiful without you needed to be Roger and Mimi's song. And when that became Roger's and Mimi's song, there became a need for Maureen and Joanne to express themselves, but not in that kind of romantic way, but in an argumentative way. And so he wrote a lot of argument songs, and it took a while. And again, and I think with the incredible inspiration of Freddie Walker and Adina Menzel to write Take Me or Leave Me. And when he did... Tim Weil, our extraordinary, extraordinary music director, and and I just, you know, flipped, and certainly Freddie and Adina flipped, and, you know, that song got learnt and staged probably in two hours. 
when it finally got there. Wow. And that staging has really remained. So. I want to talk a little hypothetically, obviously. Do you think, unfortunately, we all know that Jonathan passed away tragically. Do you think there was stuff he would have continued to do going forward? Oh, of course. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and the story I just told is an indication of that. You know, his work was getting better and better. Uh, we had a we had a really really thorough deep process through Rent, and I think he was really looking forward to writing lots more musicals and having lots more processes like that. And you know, and he was really at the top of his game. If you look at Take Me or Leave Me, which is just you know a thrilling theater song. Let's switch gears to Dear Evan Hansen mm-hmm. because and talk about the same. Same type of process because I saw one of the very early readings of that, uh-huh. and I remember being taken by the music. But I also remember being like, "Wow, what a challenging story!" I'm not sure if a commercial audience will ever take to this. I think there was an ensemble involved at the time. Was there more there, people involved? There, there was briefly an ensemble. Although when when I first started talking about the show. And probably because of Next to Normal, I thought this would be great to do with a very small amount of people. And we also have the opportunity to have all of those other voices just join us virtually. You know, that component of the musical was always there. You know, um, this, the incredible song, which is now um, You Will Be Found, uh, had another song in its place when I first encountered the material that you certainly listened to when you saw that reading. And we actually performed in DC. It was called A Part of Me. And, and a part of a part of me was the reaction of the community to Connor's death, similar to what you now see and you will be found, although the focus has moved on to Evan instead of Connor. But there was always a component of the world weighing in on this event. And, um, I think one of the first things I talked about was what a great opportunity to bring in, you know, media and the virtual world in 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 a completely uh, organic way. We don't need people to do it. Then we examined what would happen if there were if some of that virtual community were represented with actual people. And then after that workshop, the incredibly smart writers said, "No, let's really be, let's go back to basics and really keep it tight." So that's what happened. As I actually listen to you talk about that, I'm thinking about all of your canon or your body of work, which, you know, most of our biggest hits on Broadway are big hits, are the Phantoms and the Les Mis and the Lion Kings and the Wicked, these giant spectacles. And yours have all been small. They've been sort of family dramas. Yeah. With music. And that really is bucking the trend. You know, some some other Broadway statistician once told me, Ken, you want a big Broadway hit, you got to make it a big hit. It's got a huge scene. It's got to be spectacle. How have you managed to buck that trend? I, I, I just think I've been really fortunate to be connected to really great stories with really uh, accessible, flawed, but identifiable characters. I think theater is really about seeing yourself up there. And I think people really want to identify with those characters or identify with a a former part of their history when they were that character. Um, And also, in the case of musicals, sensationally told by really, really great composers. You know, um, if I think of, you know, Justin and Benj, and I think of Tom Kitt and Brian Yorkie and Jonathan Larson, I feel very fortunate that I've gotten to work with some extraordinary, 
extraordinary composers. I've also done a lot of work with Scott Frankel and Michael Corey, and I think their work is extraordinary too. So let's go back to the beginnings of your career. Uh-huh. How, how did you get started? Um, I directed terrible musicals in high school, and I probably wanted to be an actor, but I probably had too many self-esteem issues to actually like to be seen. Um, but I certainly, uh, I didn't go to the theater a lot, but I, I, I was always very drawn to it and to sort of alternative lives. Um, I, I guess it was just a very typical, you know, unhappy gay boy in the early 60s, 70s in Brooklyn. So it was, I, I think, a very natural extension that I would be drawn to that area. Um, I had an older sister who very sadly passed away who was interested in theater and she exposed me to a lot of things. I also have a living sister who lives in Florida. So I don't want to leave her out. Um, but, you know, when I was way too young, I had a lot of exposure to like hair and a lot of really great plays on PBS. I mean, it was really like that. We were certainly a very working class family. We probably went to the theater once a year. I probably, I saw Hello Dolly. I saw, I saw like that big musical once a year and we'd sit way up high and I liked that. But a lot of, a lot of the exposure really came from television and it came from my sister's influence. Um, and so by the time I was in high school, you know, I was looking for a place to belong and, um, This was the uh, 70s in the New York City high school system, and they had these original musicals called uh, Sing that that essentially involved hundreds of students. They'd be, you know, an acting group that told a story. There were like 10 or 15 of those people. Then there was a dancing troupe, the 15 of the best-looking women, and, you know, the cheerleaders became dancers, and they were very popular. And then there were like a 100 other women who were in a chorus. These these were really big. They were, it was about community. The shows were about community. And because it was the 70s, they were very, they had very idealized plots about making the world a better place and living in peace and protecting the earth. <laughs> All the things we should still be talking about now and sometimes we do and too often we don't. Um, and I began directing them. And essentially what we did is we stole popular musicals of the time and added our own terrible lyrics and our terrible story to them. So they'd have big opening numbers. I think like, you know, one of our big opening numbers was Magic to Do. Another big opening number was um, uh, Brand New Day from The Wiz. You know, they were, we, we stole from the musicals of the time. I don't want to get singing into too much trouble, but believe me. <laughs> It was all done with a dollar ten, and you know tickets were free. And then, then the classes would compete against one another. And then, if you won, the schools would compete against one another. You know, because it's American, has to all be a competition, or else it's not interesting. So we did that, um, and and I felt really good about that. And so by the time I went into college, I I sort of believed that I would be interested in directing. I went to Northwestern. I went there because. I wasn't really ready to commit to a professional life in the theater. I didn't know that I would make it. I continued to have those esteem issues. Um, 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 uh, you know, when Northwestern was great because I could study liberal arts as well as theater. When I got to Northwestern, I realized I could also study something called oral interpretation, which is now called performance studies, which was a great, great 
program of study um, that was that had an incredible faculty, including uh, Frank Alotti. And Mary Zimmerman was my classmate. So people who's, who are doing the most extraordinary innovative theater work were around and doing that kind of work or laying the seeds for that kind of work back then in the late 70s, early 80s when I was around. Bruce Norris was a classmate of mine. I had a wonderful, wonderful group. And, and I loved my classes and I loved the way in which especially the oral interpretation classes now called performance study classes, you know, asked you as a performer to interpret material. We also adapted a lot of nonfiction, non-dramatic material, sometimes fiction, sometimes nonfiction, sometimes documentary to, to what we now call device theater. Um, so it was very engaging and very engaged. And by the time I finished, I had directed my obligatory production of Rosencrantz and Kildans Turner Dead, and I loved Beckett, and I loved Stoppard, and I loved everyone you're supposed to love. Um, and I thought I might actually stay in Chicago and try to have a go of becoming a part of a theater collective. And and um, while I was in Chicago, I also got to see Steppenwolf's early work, the extraordinary production of Bomb and Gilead that came to New York and made them, you know, nationally known. I got to see in Chicago all the time. Uh, and I saw a lot of their work in Chicago. Um, so I thought I might stay in Chicago. I got an opportunity from a friend from high school to actually become an assistant director in New York. I took that opportunity. And once I hit New York, I realized that I needed more training and I started looking for graduate programs. Um, and I, I'd actually heard from Olympia Dukakis, strangely. I ran into someone while waiting to see cats in London who knew Olympia Dukakis and I told her I was interested in directing and she said, my friend Olympia, you know, works at NYU and you, and I've gotten to know Olympia since then and I love Olympia very much and think the world of her. I had a little interview with Olympia and she said, you know, NYU is discontinuing their directing program. I, I wouldn't advise you to go there. But the year I might have gone there was also the year that David S. Bjornsson and Tony Kushner went there as directors. Um, I applied to Yale. I got waitlisted. I applied to UCSD because uh, Alan Schneider was teaching directing there. And as I said, I'd love Beckett. And I thought, you know, I was going to direct things like Beckett. Um, and so I was very excited to have the opportunity to work with Alan. And uh, I interviewed with Alan and a wonderful acting teacher who's died recently named Arthur Wagner. And I think because I was just like very New York, too, they really took to me. And I found I had, once again, some incredible mentors at UCSD. And it really was at UCSD that I, I, I felt like it was clear that I was well-liked and people believed in me. Um, in my very first year in graduate school, I heard that Des Mackinoff was taking over the La Jolla Playhouse. I had seen a number of really excellent productions Des had done at the public theater. Certainly all through college, whenever I'd come back to New York, I'd wait on that half price tickets line or quick ticks line or whatever it was called at the public at the time. And I saw everything at the public and the public was really was doing the work that I most admired, you know, in, in a, certainly in New York or yeah, certainly in New York as there's also the Guthrie that I really respected at the time. Um, anyway, so I knew Des's work and I was sort of like one of the few people in San Diego, certainly one of the few people in my program who did. 
And I actually became the house manager for the first season of the Lloyd Playhouse, which was an unbelievable season. Peter Sellers did the visions of, visions of Simone Richard. Robert Woodruff directed a play. Des directed uh, Romeo and Juliet in a play of Barry Keefe's. And by the time we did Romeo and Juliet, I became Des's assistant. And I remained his assistant for a number of years. So I, I was I was getting an incredibly diverse uh, kind of... Uh, Diverse kinds of influences, which all sort of were stewing really well. You know, Alan was talking about Beckett and Alan was talking about Albie and Des can talk about anything and should. And, um, uh, 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 and I was feeling really supported in the program, but I was also meeting Peter Sellers and Robert Woodruff and, and the incredible directors that Des was bringing out to the playhouse whose work mainly I'd seen in New York, but to be close up and to watch processes. I just, grad school for me was really, 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 really formative and, and important. You said when you got to New York, you quickly knew that you needed more education. Yes. What was, what gave you that indication? It's about, it's really just about like, uh, you know, how, how, how much can you put yourself out there? I just wasn't ready. I knew I couldn't put myself out there. You know, I could have stage managed, I could have assisted, but I didn't really see the way I was going to make the leap. From I a was confidence doing, perspective? Yeah, both from a confidence perspective and a sort of a practical reality with with a by looking around and seeing mm-hmm. who was getting work and who wasn't getting work. But it was sort of a good combination of both. I certainly have a lot of regard for some people who've come right out of undergrad and and make it. I think that's fantastic, but I knew it wasn't for me. And I always tell people who were asking me about that, that people have different paths. This path was, I, I certainly needed more lab incubation support to start to sell my wares. And cause on some level you really, really do at some point need to sell your wares. And should we jump to that chapter? Yes. <laughs> selling shit. Um, <laughs> you know, um, when I got out of graduate school, I, I had a number of good contacts. There were a number of programs that were giving emerging directors opportunities. One of them was the TCG fellowship, which is a little different than it is now, although that still exists. And, and really the most sought after program in the city at the time was the New York Theater Workshop New Directors Project, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, Jean Passanante started it. Uh, uh, I think it lasted about five or six years. What Jim did is he took all of the alums of, of that directing project and he turned us into what are now called the usual suspects. So we were always an advisory group and we, we met with Jim and talked about projects we wanted to do. And the New York Theater Workshop has always been extraordinary about providing opportunities for early career directors and they continue to be, which is remarkable. Um, so I, I was fortunate to, uh, become a part of this new director's project. Uh, as I said, Jean Passanante was running the, the workshop at the time. Tony Kushner was her associate. Tony and I met each other like back in 1984, maybe even earlier. And I, and I, and as I said, because I knew we were in graduate school at the same time, there was sort of some little communication, like Facebook didn't exist, but there was some little contact between like, emerging directors at the time. I didn't know that he was a playwright at the time. Um, 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 uh, so I got, uh, I was accepted into that project. Uh, I did a play called 70 Scenes of Halloween. Uh, 
it was a good opportunity to show off a little as a director because what it had, it had 70 short scenes, all inhabited by four characters. And the reality and the tone would shift from short scene to short scene. And the playwright, Jeffrey Jones, in, in a forward that I took very seriously said, I want every director to actually take the opportunity to uh, order the scenes in whatever way you want to order them. So there was a lot of dramaturgy and writing involved in the directing of that project as well. That project went well. And, and you know, and I got a wonderful agent named Helen Merrill out of it, who a lot of early career directors got to know back in the day. And at some point, she started working with a man named Patrick Harold, who remains my agent today. Um, but I also, you know, then had this period where I was getting a little regional work, but I was certainly not getting the next job in New York. Um, and because I was frustrated about not getting the work in New York, I followed some advice that Michael Weller gave me when I was a graduate student. He said, you just need to put your own work up. No one's going to hire you. Put your own work up. Well, very, very fortunately, uh, I... I had become the uh, associate and tour director of Big River after assisting Des on it for a number of years. I brought it to Australia where it was ridiculously popular and lasted much longer than anyone imagined it would last. And that gave me some money. I did a bus and truck of it. So I had a little money from my commercial theater exposure. This also, you know, puts me in very good stead when Jonathan asks the inevitable question of, yeah, but has he ever directed a musical? Which he, of course, posits to Jim Nicole. And Jim says, yes, in fact, go to Australia. He's very popular as a musical director there. Anyway, um, so uh, a number of years pass after the New York Theatre Workshop. And I'm getting some work out of town. And I'm getting good jobs regionally. But I can't get into any of the theaters I want to get into. So I take Michael's advice. And very fortunately, I'm able to self-produce, along with the very wonderful Jody Markell, and Naked Angels Theater, a production of Machinal. And Jody was uh, someone I met in college, and Jody was brilliant enough, as she still is, to get the rights to Machinal because she loved that part. And um, she invited me to direct it, and it was a large show. There were about 15 people in it. Um, there was a moment where we were going to do it at the uh, Equity Library Theater, the Equity Library Theater closed after I got the invitation to work there, of course. That's a whole other story that I shouldn't dwell on or talk about because I don't really know all the facts at all. But anyway, because there was a production sort of in mind already, Jody and I decided to to uh, ask the, uh, the theater group that she was connected to, Naked Angels, if they would house us. And they agreed, provided that we could produce it, meaning pay for it. And so we paid for a showcase. I think it was probably 20,000 bucks or something like that. And this was really successful. And I think because my friend David Warren worked at the public at the time, I think he came with Kevin Klein to see it, which was, I think, an act of friendship. And Kevin Klein really liked it. And then Kevin Klein invited Joe Papp to see it. And I mean, I, I honestly remember, you know, having to go to the box office to say, it's very important that Joe Papp has a good seat. And they were like, who's Joe Papp? And we were sold out. And I don't know if we can get him a seat. <laughs> I mean, that really happened. So Joe Papp came and saw this production of Machinal that Jody and I produced that she was at the center of with a lot of wonderful Naked Angel actors. Um, and uh, 
Joe saw that production and then Joe called me and that was like completely life-changing and very, very, very unexpected. Uh, Joe called and said, I'd love you to come in and talk about being a resident director here. And what that means is I'll give you about a million dollars and you can produce and direct, you know, one show, two shows. I think you should do three shows. And I mean, it was... Yeah, what was your response to that one? But, you know, you sit there and go, yes, that would be good. I'd like that. But it it was really, it was beyond, you know, a dream come true. And it was really, I mean, that's the moment for me. I know that when people look at, you know, my life in the commercial theater, it's rent. But for me, it was all about Machinal and what that did in terms of making me, uh, allowing Joe Papp and the rest of New York City to see me as a, as a, director all because you put your money where your talent is yeah and when michael weller told me to do that i was really very frustrated and i think that's not the way it should work you shouldn't have to do that it shouldn't be about privilege but i'm very happy to say that for me it wasn't about privilege it was about being fortunate enough to you know wisely collect some money and be able to invest it wisely when at the right time um and uh so so I did a couple of years as an associate at a director at the public theater and very, very, very sadly, but not surprisingly, you know, Joe was very ill and then Joe died during that residency. But I worked closely with uh, George Wolf and David Greenspan and Joanna Galaitis. And that's very thrilling. Um, and because of Machinal, you know, which Jonathan and some of his friends saw both at Naked Angels and the public, you know, I became a possible director for this musical rent. So it all really stems back to that one Completely. production. You know, and yeah, I mean, everything leads to everything. But if, if there was a turning point, if there was a marker, it's certainly that. You obviously started your career not only being a student of plays, but a lover of plays. I can hear it in your voice. You yeah. talk about Beckett. And, yeah. And now you're known for these big commercial musicals. Yeah, or, you, or small commercial or small musicals. Small commercial musicals, say. right, with big box office numbers. Yeah. Do you miss plays? Do you want to do more plays? Yeah. I'm, I also feel unbelievably fortunate as I really go back and forth. Um, before we started our interview, I said I'm about to go do a new play of Michael Christopher's at the Huntington called Man in the Ring. Uh, last season, I was really, really thrilled to do Bruce Norris's epic, brilliant The Low Road at the public. I've gotten to work at the Delacorte on Shakespeare a number of times, and I look forward to more opportunities to that. And I'd certainly like to do plays on Broadway. People, you know, I think people know that I'd like to do plays on Broadway. Do you read reviews? Uh Uh-huh. And why? I feel like I'm the one who really needs to be the link. You know, I'm the one who really needs to understand uh, what the work I've done with the actors and the rest of the creative team. I'm the one who really needs to be responsible for how it's ultimately received. So I feel like it's really an important part of my responsibility. Uh, and I you know, and uh, sometimes it'll take me a day or two, or I'll actually ask to ask someone to like, let me know about the good ones first. But ultimately, I do read them all. And I really do take, uh, I, I take them very seriously. You've also worked with some of the 
best producers the industry yes. has. Yes. Uh, Kevin and Jeffrey, of course, on yes. Rent, David Stone. How do you describe the best producer-director relationship? What do you look for from producers? Uh, I, I really look for a collaborator. I really uh, look for someone. I, I mean, in, in I feel like the best projects really begin with uh, producers putting a team together. And often, you know, there are certainly opportunities where I put a team together, but I've been really fortunate for when you know, David Stone or Stacey Mindich have put a team together and I've, you know, recognized the incredible wisdom of, of how we all got there. So I think a lot of it starts with that. Um, in the case of David, you know, I think some of the things we've done have also have been like his idea, you know, and he's like, I'm looking for a group of people who can execute this idea, you know, see, how will you be inspired by this idea? Um, and then I, what I'm looking for really in, in, in the trenches is someone who's going to, you know, believe in me and trust me and certainly question me and certainly challenge me, but also someone who's going to recognize that I'm doing something that, that's unique. You know, that all that we directors have a real unique thing to bring to the process as well. You've obviously been a part of some big, big hits, but not everything can be a big, big mm -hmm. hit. When something misses slightly or in a big way and it doesn't get the response that you thought it might, how do you pick yourself up from that? Uh, it varies. A lot of it has to do with... If, if you, if you're really confused by the response. <laughs> we were talking about that just before we started. Yes. I think, I think when you're confused by the response, it takes longer. If, 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 you know, there's that little, you know, sweat running down the back of your neck that sort of in some way precedes the sort of dousing that you later get. In some ways, I don't know, maybe that's just ego. Maybe that's easier because you can feel like, I understand how that happened, or I saw that coming, or I know we weren't really hitting it. But sometimes it's confusing, and those are, those are tougher. Is there any show that you'd love to go, of yours, that you'd love to go back and direct again? If you had another shot at it? Well, yeah, this is dangerous to say, but I've said it before. Bright Lights, Big City. Is, is, is a really, 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 is a musical with really great music and a really complicated story. And I don't know that it could work. And I, I honestly think what I've come to believe is if, if a character is flawed or inaccessible in a way that can't let an audience really root for him or her, that it's really rough. And even like, and, and I'm not talking about, you know, the Demon Barber Street of Fleet Street is exquisitely written and you can completely understand and, and go on the journey with him as twisted as it is. And certainly with Miss Lovett. So I'm not saying everyone has to be nice or good, but, um, certainly, you know, Paul has yet to, to Paul Scott Goodman, the really, really, really talented composer of Bright Lights Big City hasn't yet, you know, found a way to, introduce that, sustain that character in a way that 
he becomes someone that you can really follow and really identify with. But I, I do think about getting back to it. And people have heard me say that. And, and Paul has heard me say that. So it's not, you know, my phone won't be ringing when, after this is aired. Well, as a secret fan of that show, oh, I would love nice. to see you well, get back to that. Well, that's very, very nice that you're a secret fan of it. it and, and, and it has its fans. And I think that's, it's very, that's very meaningful to Paul and it's very meaningful to me. And, you know, some really great contemporary composers and, I'll let you figure out who those people are really like that musical. What's your relationship like with actors during the process? Do you... I think it's really good. And I, I think it's important for it to be really good. Um, I think that it's... Uh, I think it starts with actually a lot of respect for what they do. I think maybe because I was a rotten actor myself. Um, I also uh, was uh, partnered with an actor. I no longer live with him, but we were together for a lot of decades, so I understood what his life was like. Um, but I also think actors, I think we go to the theater to see the actors interpret the material. <laughs> you know, you know, of course it's all about the material ultimately, but the first line of communication are the actor. And I think when people go to the theater, they see the people up there and they see what they're doing. And so I think they, I think, they carry that responsibility and we have a tremendous responsibility to them to give them every possible tool to do their absolute best. You get a chance to see a lot of theater, obviously read a lot of theater and projects that you say yes or no uh -huh. to. What's the one thing, the most common, for lack of a better word, mistake you see in shows from a writing perspective and also from a directorial perspective some commonality that you see emerging artists that they could improve on i mean i i in 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 some ways it touches on some of the things we talked about before the interview began um I, I feel like there's there's some mistaken notion that you know broadway needs to be you know, as accessible as, you know, um, the biggest studio movie. You know, I don't think it has to appeal to everyone, I think. I, I think it has to be, you know, about something and somewhat challenging to be really well-loved. And I, I sometimes I, I believe people are just trying to make material that much more accessible and likable than they need to. And that's... I don't feel like that makes for the best work. All right. My last question, which is my genie question. I want uh -huh. you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you. <laughs> okay. And wants to thank you for <laughs> your contribution. He's very noisy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Big entrance. Uh -huh. uh, wants to thank you for your contribution to the American musical theater and the theater as a whole by granting you one wish. What's the one thing about Broadway that drives you so crazy, so mad, so frustrates you that you'd ask this genie to wish away in an instant? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm really such a pragmatist. I never really think of things like that. Uh, you know, I mean, certainly I like for all the ticket prices to be 35 bucks all the time for everyone. So... Maybe that was what I'd, I'd wish for. Uh, well, thank you for that. Thank you thank for joining you. us. And thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you next time. Look out, Broadway.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.